had all these really bad things happen to me that took me to a place where I needed to figure out what I wanted out of life and what made me happy. And I found something that did, and I took it to the bottom of the world. And now I was going to take it to everything in between. So it was a, a triumphant story where I learned a lot. And I concluded that if I hadn't had the bad part, maybe I wouldn't have had the good part. So that was what I wanted the message to be. And that was what I felt like it was for me. So hearing that his perspective was so different was kind of, it rattled me a little bit. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Ryan Delena was a problem child. He had frequent emotional outbursts and his parents were at wit's end in their efforts to control him. Mental health professionals and teachers said he needed to be removed from the public schools where he lived in suburban Boston and placed into therapeutic schools. While there, he was subjected to physical restraints and heavy medication. Nothing helped. He ultimately landed in a psychiatric hospital. The problems only got worse. In a desperate attempt to connect with his troubled son, Ryan's father, Rob, took his son skiing at a small Massachusetts ski area. That was the beginning of a transformation for young Ryan as he nurtured a dream to become a professional ski mountaineer. He finished high school and enrolled at Northern Vermont University, where he currently studies outdoor education. Ryan and Rob Delena have co-authored a new memoir, Without Restraint, How Skiing Saved My Son's Life. I spoke to them at their family home in Sudbury, Massachusetts. Rob and Ryan Delena, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. Thanks Thanks. for having us. Good to be here. So, uh, Rob, I'm going to start with you because that's the way your book starts. You kind of set the table for the story that follows. And, uh, you know, I noticed that in the start of the book, your narratives are longer because Ryan's at an age he probably doesn't remember a lot of those stories. And then... Uh, it shifts and Ryan's narratives become longer. So, Rob, um, you write at the very beginning, I learned everyone was wrong about Ryan, especially me. Mm-hmm. That's quite a thing for a father to say. Um, so talk a little bit about raising Ryan. Uh, so raise, I think it's twofold. I mean, I think part of what I was wrong about was just general parental expectations. I wanted Ryan to do better than I did. And and I was, you know, sort of a blue collar, you know, lower middle class kid. I've, I've done well. I went to law school. I've, I started my own business and I just thought he would take that to the next level. And I expected him to take that to the next level. I went to a good college, but I didn't go to, you know, an, you know I didn't go to Harvard. So I expected him to go to Harvard. And, you know, I was a pretty good college baseball player. I thought he was going to be a great college baseball player. And I, so I was definitely wrong about that. But then as, as, as things unfolded, Ryan was a really difficult kid. He never stopped moving. He was super smart, stubborn, willful, uh, but he was also defiant in a way he enjoyed defiance. You know, it wasn't just, you know, him you know, wanting to do his something. He, he seemed to look for ways to defy us. So that was fine at home. I was able to manage that. But when he got into school and teachers start telling you, you know, he can't go here. He's so different. I think at that point where I was wrong was I thought, you know, I, I can fix this. If I just crack down or we go to the right doctor, or we try the right medicine, I'll make him like everybody else. And then he'll go back on the track that, that I wanted him to be on originally. So I guess I was wrong twice. You were going to the best experts in the Boston area. Um, you can hardly be faulted for that. Uh, that in itself is a sign of great love. You were trying everything that as a parent and Ryan was your first Uh, first of two kids. So um, this was new to you and you were hearing from supposedly the best and the brightest. What were you being told about your son? So I think the the school aspect, you know, was it was that he just wouldn't do what they wanted him to do when he was he was being disruptive. And this is in preschool. I mean, he was four years old when we were hearing this stuff. Uh, it was there was never an intelligence question or you know you can't follow the material. He just didn't want to do. I mean, this is like crayons and like you know building with blocks. I mean, he just he was more fascinated by the sink or the air conditioner in the in the unit, and he wanted to take it apart and 
And, you know, I viewed that as a sign of intelligence. They viewed that as, as you know, that he was just disruptive or defiant. Uh, so I think the school flagged it right away. We, we sent him to this uh, summer camp that was a, a lead up to preschool. And and the first day they asked uh, to have the next day have a pediatric neuropsychologist, um, you know, observe him. So they saw something right away. And at the time, you know, autism was was sort of what was floated around. You know, but he was clearly not autistic because he was so verbal. There really wasn't this spectrum, I think, that exists today. It was sort of you are or you aren't. And once we screened him out as or he's not clearly not autistic, what is he? And then they worked really when we finally saw this neuropsychologist, she worked really hard to find a label. I, I talk about this in the book. She's literally thumbing through the diagnostic and statistical manual looking for something she would pause and then she would shake her head and then she would pause again and nod her head and when she came up with pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified and i remember looking at my wife and saying that doesn't really sound like anything you know it's, it sounds like she's really and she even admitted without a title or without a label you can't get the services from the town and so i thought all right this is all we're working this angle and we'll get more services if he, if he has that label we'll live with that label although you know listen listen to it yourself and let it rattle around your head it doesn't really tell you much right so, so thus begins an odyssey of taking ryan out of the regular public schools in sudbury mass and entering his first therapeutic school um ryan can you describe what these therapeutic schools are and talk about a name that doesn't really say anything? Therapeutic school uh, sounds like a euphemism. Um, so what was it for you, Ryan? Uh, it's hard to describe it under one label. I would say it's a smaller school. Generally, they didn't really look like schools. Generally, the classrooms were pretty small. You know, you talk to teachers by first name. Um, and all of the kids there kind of had their own issue. It was uh, a collective of people who were all going through something different, um, trying to live under an umbrella of uh, people who were treating them the same. It really, the, the approach didn't work for everybody, but as long as it worked for the majority, then they would go for it. And that was fundamentally without any specifics you know, what went wrong for me at these therapeutic schools is that I was generally the one it didn't work for and who got screwed in that process. For me, my first therapeutic school that I went to, um, their whole MO was the hold, which was a restraint. So if you acted up, they would try and put you in timeout, which was just a red chair. And if you didn't want to go into timeout, they would restrain you. And I think in this first school, they were really overused and the power was abused because I could tell, you know, these people, they liked doing these. They they found something out of putting kids on the floor. And if you fought back, they used more force. Like they wanted to subdue you. They really, it was not to keep the other kids safe. It was really to kind of break you. So generally, I would say in the beginning, I was probably restrained about once a day, starting when I was five. And uh, as I got a little bit older and I was strong enough that I could fight back a little bit, because um, I felt threatened by these things. Oftentimes I would get rug burns, they would cover my mouth, I felt like I couldn't breathe. I was really scared of restraints. So when I felt one coming on, I would try and defend myself. I would try and run away or I would try and get them off me, punch, kick, whatever. So it was getting to the point where I wasn't really learning anything in school. I was spending a lot of school in, in fights trying to avoid these restraints. Can you it, explain what a restraint is? Essentially, they're trying to stop you from doing what you're doing with force. So generally, that meant they would grab your arms and put them behind your back or around you somehow so you couldn't move your arms and then they would get your legs out from underneath you and then they would put you onto the floor and get on top of you uh until you tapped out really uh until you stopped trying to fight back and you know i always think it's interesting they'll they'll yell in your ear like are you ready to be safe yet are you ready to be safe and it's just like what they mean by that is are you ready to stop resisting because you know 
be safe could mean a lot of things. I didn't really feel safe in any of those situations. What was the most extreme version of these restraints that you were subjected to? There's one example that always stands out in my mind. I mean, for the most part, a lot of them are all the same, but I was on the playground, which if you know the layout of this school, which I won't name it by name, um, but it, there's a playground at the very top of a hill and it's probably about a 10 minute walk from the top of this hill back to the school. And it was in the winter, there was a snowman and I didn't even know who built it, it was just over there. And I was getting rowdy and I like kicked the snowman over cause you know, boys like to knock things down. You know, it's just, it's how it goes. Uh, it wasn't spiteful. It wasn't anything. I just saw it and I wanted to knock it over. <laughs> and the, uh, the kid who did make it saw me do that and he got upset and the teacher came over and grabbed me by the wrist and was like, when we get down, we're going to have a very long hold. And I walked peacefully down the hill for 10 minutes into the room, knowing that I was about to be put on the floor and he put me on the floor for probably 10, 15 minutes. And it really, it just stood out to me because they're out is always, if you're being a threat to yourself or you're being a threat to somebody else, then, you know, they have to stop you. But I wasn't a threat to anyone in that scenario. It was a punishment. And how old were you at that point? I think I was around seven at that point. So Rob, what was Ryan reporting to you as he would come? These were day schools, so he's coming home. And what is he telling you at night? What are you hearing? So he, he would describe them as threats on his life, that they tried to choke him and, the, and he couldn't breathe. And we would get this book at the uh, sort of an English composition book where they would write a, sort of a journal entry about his day. And, and the circumstances around the whatever hold he had, you know, characterized him as as the bad actor and that they, they were left with no choice. Um, it's important, I think, to note the rules were different then. The rules changed in 2016. So a couple of things. They're not. You're now not allowed allowed to use restraints as a as a quote unquote punishment. It's really limited to situations where the student is a threat to himself or to someone else. Now that is a huge loophole to run through, and then teachers do it all the time. I'm sure, and we saw that in in later schools. But uh, you're also uh, prone restraints, which are the ones face down on the ground. Those uh, got limited more in in the 2016 changes in the Massachusetts law as well, as well, uh, because kids were there were kids that died during the prone restraints. I mean, it's it's you've seen it. You know, you've seen videos of this, you know, all the time. It's, it's, it was, it was worse. So they then had to sort of get you from behind and hug you, which if you're, if you're dealing with a high school kid, it's almost impossible. So they, they can then get to a prone restraint uh, through another series of loopholes. Um, but anyways, I digressed a little bit, but Ryan was talking about it, but it's also important to remember we were doing them at home. The school trained us on how to do restraints at home. And that was really, for me, the eye opening part, because like Ryan said, particularly as a man, when he and I would, when I would be forced to do one, I would want to win that wrestling match. I mean, I would, you know, my adrenaline would start pumping and I, you know, back to what I said when we started that I, I thought if I did this enough, he would stop you know, being defiant. I would break the young Colt and he would be like all the other kids. It would, it would be after those exchanges where I would be sweating and he would be rug burned. And I would try to remember why I started in the, what, what did he do? To, how did we get in this position? And, and, and I think this is ridiculous. There's, it's not helping because I noticed he would never, it wasn't like he was making better, just different decisions the next time. You know, it just, it was just a, you know, it was abuse, frankly. And, and I, we stopped doing it at home. And, and when we, and then we started to push that first school to stop them from doing it there it was just so integrated in their model that they they wouldn't and and that's eventually you know what blew things up there was that they they wouldn't you know they wouldn't stop doing it and they and we really didn't have any other answers for them as to well you know they would come back and say well what should we do if he gets out of control and you know my answer was always and my wife's answer was always there should have been a series of steps leading up to that where through just conversation humor distraction and that's what we started doing at home was you know if he was you know, being difficult with his sister or, you know, physical or in some ways, and it really happened. Mostly he just was defiant and somehow it ended up in a restraint. Yeah, I could usually head it off with a joke or just to change the subject, do something else. I mean, it just, I got better at it and I just expected them to get better at it. And they, they couldn't, they, they it, was, it was just too much a part of, of who they were. So you take, when Ryan is seven, uh, you take a fateful, a trip 
um, to a small ski area outside of Boston, Neshoba Valley. What happened there for you? What did you see? Uh, Rob, I'll start with you and we'll move to Ryan. Yeah, Ryan, our versions are a little different. Uh, so we had, when, whenever Ryan would act up at home, like I said, I started using distraction or, or just to, to just change the mood and we'd jump in the car and we used to go to Home Depot and wander around all the time and we'd you know, anywhere, parks. Home and, Depot. He he liked to look at tools. He loved, but we'd always leave with something. And he'd always <laughs> want the biggest, like most expensive wrench. And I, I have like a wrenches <laughs> that could open fire hydrants. That I no idea how to use uh, to this day. So he, he, uh, he would always do that. So I, I, I don't even remember why, you know, I, I do know we drove by in a show a couple of times. There was a, uh, like a soccer, indoor soccer place where we went to some disastrous birthday parties. And probably one time I just, it clicked in the back of my head. Like, maybe we'll try that someday. So it's Christmas break. It's been a long week. We have nothing to do. We had no really winter activities. He's driving his sister crazy. Everyone in the house, the tension's mounting. I just throw him in the car. I think I took his his bicycle helmet and a coat, maybe. I don't even, hopefully I had gloves and we just drive, drive there. And the whole time I'm thinking, this is never gonna, we're never gonna get through the rental process. He's never gonna do this. Um, Cause he can't wait for anything. He could never wait in any lines and, and anything that was slow or tedious, he just, he would just unravel. And somehow we go through the rental process. They measure our feet, they weigh us, you know, when in these uncomfortable boots, we go wandering out to the magic carpet. Next thing I know, we're riding up the magic carpet and we get to the top. And I had never talked to him about skiing at all until we got to that point. And I said, wait, 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 wait. let me just show you how to turn. And, 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 if, and if you fall, how to stop. And if you fall, how to get up. And, and he just looked at me and he, and he didn't listen to a thing I said. And he straight lined right down to the bottom. And then he made this big turn back toward the magic carpet. And I was like, how did he do that? He's no idea what he's doing, but it was more natural than any, you know, anyone there. And people are falling all around him. You know what the magic carpet's like, uh, you know, and he just seemed to get it. And when we, you know, we did, we rode that thing a few times. We rode the lift, you know, we had some mishaps. We fell off the lift the first time we tried to load it and things that would have ended our day anywhere else. He just seemed to, he seemed willing to wait in the lines because he really wanted to go to the top. And when we drove home, I remember thinking that wasn't terrible. And that's where the bar had been put, you know, I mean, we, you know, wasn't raised very high. Terrible and not terrible. Yeah. And so <laughs> I, we were willing to go back the next day because it because of that experience. So Ryan, what is your memory of that first trip to go skiing? Pretty similar. I don't really, uh, I remember he said, well, you should try skiing today. And um, I was thinking back to an episode of Curious George where they skied and it was like pretty rudimentary. And I was asking him all these questions like, oh, how did the skis stay on your feet? Like all, you know, I had no idea what I was in for. Um, but I had this, this episode in my head and I just thought it was going to be simple. Um, and we rode up the magic carpet. I don't remember him trying to explain to me anything. I remember getting off the magic carpet and moving in the direction of the hill. Cause I'm like, that's the point, right? We go down. So I went down the hill and then I wanted to get back in the line to do it again. So I just pointed my body in that direction. Uh, and I remember doing this PSIA drill back in the day where if you, um, if you try and stay in railroad tracks without choosing a fixed point you're going to go back up the hill if you choose a fixed point it your edges tend to take you where you're trying to go and that's what i've ultimately attributed to it somehow i made a perfect j turn and just went back into the line without crashing into a kid or hitting the magic carpet and then i went and did it again uh it was really natural for me and i didn't question it i just thought that was how it was supposed to go you could kind of will your skis to go in the direction you wanted, and it, it kind of worked. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, Rob, this begins, a, kind of a light bulb goes on for you. Yeah. yeah. This so thing we... worked. And so how do you start to, how do your ski trips start to become a bigger and bigger part of your relationship with your son? So once you start dry, I think there's two, there's a lot of elements to skiing, but you know, this, people forget the chairlift is a great time to sit and talk. And we, we would have these long talks on the chairlifts. And we, when we started driving, you know, we went to what you sit the next weekend. And then we went to Loon the following weekend, you know, that's two hours there and two hours back for us. So, you know, he would fall asleep on the way home usually, but on the way up, we'd talk. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of time together. We had to eat lunch together. 
And, you know, I, I tried to make the experience, I tried to limit the parts that I knew he would struggle with, like the, the cafeteria would be a disaster for him. So we would eat in the quiet hotel restaurant. I, I started at Loon, I would, I learned, I researched and I parked at South Peak, which had a, had its own uh, line to buy tickets. And, and the lift line was a little shorter to start the day. Cause that was the hardest part was getting out of the car and just getting on that first lift was the longest, you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes, whatever it was of my life, because he was so amped up to get going. I was so excited. So, so Ryan, I'm curious, what is going on for the things that your dad described as being hard for you, the lines, the weights, um, what would go on for you in those settings? I mean, honestly, um, a lot of it was just needing to grow up. There were things I don't even remember why I hated lines so much. I mean, for the same reason anybody else hates them. I guess I, I just didn't deal with them as well as other kids. I don't know. I just I was excited. I, I wanted to go and I, I I hated tedium and boredom and things of that sort. Um but I think it got better as I started skiing. I think um when you're a kid, you do a lot of what your parents want to do. So like when we waited in a long line, usually it was for I don't know, like some cider donuts that I wasn't even sure I wanted. Like I felt like I was, you know, just being forced to to wait for something that I really didn't want that bad. But when I wanted to get on the lift, I was just excited. You know, I, I was willing to go through that. So I guess that was what I would attribute it to. So a, f uh, a big move happens in your junior year of high school, which is that you leave therapeutic schools and you enter the local public high school. Ryan, well, maybe just I'll, I'll ask uh, Rob, first of all, what made you think that was going to work? So I, by the time we got through the third therapeutic school, they were still restraining him off and on, and they were isolating him a lot. They would lock him into a, in a room. And, and you know, we had a therapist at that point who was saying that the isolation room was as stressful for him as, as the restraints. So we were fighting pretty hard to get him back. The public school, I could tell, never entertained the thought of him coming back. And so in the book, I, I went nuts one in one meeting and I started cursing at the lady and I just, you know, lost my cool. And finally, it felt like they took me seriously and they they suggested this collaborative. So for two a year and a half, he was in this collaborative program, which was kids who had struggles in Concord, Sudbury and Acton. They put him in a small setting, but they weren't allowed to restrain him or isolate him. You know, they had to treat them like a, a more of a traditional public school. And and so I, he did. I think they thought he would never get past that. And they didn't he, want me to get They didn't want, that. I think maybe they didn't, you're right. <laughs> I mean, that was the thing is like, you know, they told me like, oh, you got to make it a year, year with no issues and you go back to public. And then every day it was like, I would get frustrated with something and they would be like, you know, if you get frustrated like that in public, they're not going to take it. You know, you, you got to control yourself. Literally like, you know, I've watched my mom bang her head against the steering wheel in traffic. <laughs> like the things I were doing were, really tame <laughs> compared to that um like I, I would go and they would get on me and the pressure just built on me every day i felt like i was gonna snap i felt like i was gonna go insane because i couldn't show any emotion except content or happy no matter what was happening to me or they're gonna be like you're not gonna make it back to public they really they didn't want me to i could tell yeah and but i knew once the threat of restraint and isolation was taken out of the mix you know, all, all of his bad behaviors, if you looked at the documentation, were once they put their hands on him, and, that he would react and fight back. Mm -hmm. And he had this sort of PTSD reaction to it. So I kept saying to them, you're going to see a different kid once that's removed from the equation. And they they would, you know, yes me to death, but I knew they didn't believe me. And so he he got through the, the collaborative. And then when he went to uh, Lincoln Sudbury, he was on a 45 day evaluation where if he blew it in any of those, you know, the first 45 days, he would have been back in the collaborative. So that was stressful because, you know, at that point, he's going to walk into a 2000 person, you know, public high school. He, he never had gone to public school ever. And so he rode a yellow school bus for the first time and he he walked in and, and, and LS is a, is, is a weird school because it combines, you know, Lincoln and Sudbury. So it, it's and, there, and there's a, a lot of Metco kids. So there's almost like three schools in one. And it's pretty business-like. It's it's not this touchy-feely place. I mean, the kids, you know, get in and get out and off, you know, are off to, you know, hopefully good colleges. I mean, that's sort of the driving force there is everybody's trying to do their own thing. 
I, I knew he would have to really make it on his own and, and really go out of his way to make friends because, you know, he had a few neighborhood kids that would recognize him, but mostly he was known as his sister Abigail, you know, Abigail's brother who has all the, all the problems. And so that was going to be an uphill fight for him. But, and I think in the beginning, I worried that, it, you know, that it would, it would be almost impossible. It was an impossible task to ask a kid to walk in as a junior, not knowing anybody and, and try to integrate himself, but somehow he managed. So Ryan, talk about uh, entering public high school as a junior. What was that like for you? You know, at, at the first little bit, I was just, I was really grateful that I could be back. You know, I, people used to think I was a stoner because I was just so relaxed when I was in there. And were you, were you um, medicated at that time? No. And then no. I, I was off all my medication. But what it was is like for the first time in my life, I knew there was no threat of restraint. And I knew that there was no, nobody was watching me and scrutinizing me and like trying to find a reason why I couldn't make it in the world. Uh, and I didn't have this chip on my shoulder where I like wasn't on the same playing field as everybody else. You know, I, I had to go to these schools. I wasn't like the people in my town. I was finally on the same playing field and it just took so much stress off my shoulders. But what it was kind of replaced by was for the first time in my life, I really I was worried about what people thought. And that was tricky because at a lot of these schools, they were just intermediate steps. And a lot of these schools had rules about contact outside of school. So every time I moved, I lost contact with everybody who was there. So I didn't really care what people thought because I was sort of expecting that within a little bit of time, I was never going to hear from these people again. <laughs> so all of a sudden I realized I could have lifelong friends. I could have a girlfriend. I could have all these things. I didn't want to mess up. Um, so I, um, I put a lot of pressure on myself in that regard. Uh, but I really, I was motivated to get into it. And I remember seeing a kid, um, who was, uh, just in the back of the cafeteria at a table by himself. He had his headphones on and his hair over his eyes and he just looked crushed. And I just thought to myself, like, if I don't start making moves here, that's going to be me. I can't let this place crush me. I have to fight back from this disadvantage. So every day I just sat at a different table and I just tried to find my people and I ended up talking with people. And what it came down to was fundamentally, I was a different human than a lot of these people were, you know, I really, I wasn't partying on the weekends. I wasn't really involved in like the team sports. I wasn't a star student. I, I didn't have like a category. Every click seemed to have a category. I just wanted to go skiing and, and climb mountains and be outside. So I never found my click, but I ended up kind of being an honorary member of about 20 different clicks. So school was fun for a long time because I, I just knew so many people there and I always had somebody to chat with no matter what classroom or lunch period I was on. But I really longed for that feeling of belonging. It took me a long time to find that in my life. Ryan, you were describing um, what it was like for you to enter public school. And I was telling your dad how a light bulb had gone on when he saw, you know, that he was having a little success and you were having a little success with skiing. What light bulb went on for you as you started to have some success in public school, this kind of this promised land that had always been just beyond your reach. And now you were there. So the light bulb moment for me in all these schools, I remembered people telling me, you know, that um, because of my diagnosis, it was gonna be hard for me to adapt socially. And I internalized that really hard. And I used it as an excuse to avoid trying because I was just like, I, I'll, never, I'll never be like anybody else anyway. What, what was the diagnosis? Um, your dad described so, an early childhood diagnosis, but what did it kind of morph into? Somehow, that one. Yeah, somehow in the IEPs, they were like, oh, you have a, a mood disorder and an autism spectrum disorder, which I don't even think were formal, but people talked about them in the meetings with me and told me 
how it was affecting me. And I think because I was scared to try and because I internalized that, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. So then they're like, oh, Ryan's not making friends. And, you know, Ryan's is having a hard time with this and that. We're, we must be right. And when um, my therapist ultimately shattered my diagnosis and, you know, said, you, you're being medicated for a thing you don't have. We need to remove all these. And once we removed all the meds and I started thinking about it, I'm like, holy crap, you know, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And one, it was, it reminds me of this scene in, in Divergent when she realizes it's simulation and she like taps the glass with her knuckle and it shatters. I felt like I had shattered the glass. All of a sudden I didn't have any limitations. I was like everybody else. So it was in my hands. I had all the power. And when I figured out I had all the power to be who I wanted to be, I just went after who I wanted to be. And, and that was that, you know, high school was this really big period of just like shattering these beliefs I had about myself and becoming who I wanted to be and who they said I couldn't be. Who did you want to be, Ryan? I just, I wanted to be the best version of me I could be. I wanted to, I wanted to chase my dreams. I wanted to be confident when I talked to people you know, not pretend to be somebody I wasn't just to fit in. I wanted to just have the courage to be myself, but, you know, not be afraid that nobody else would like that. I was just very unapologetic and I was very confident going into situations. You know, I, I cracked jokes. I, you know, said hi to people coming down the hallway, gave out fist bumps. I was just like, I was more social I was more self-assured and it just, it felt good. I just wanted to feel good in my own shoes. That was, that was what I wanted. Hmm. Your book opens with uh, a scene of the two of you skiing in Antarctica, which to put it mildly is a bucket list trip for most people. Um, and it also begins, Rob, with you describing struggling uh, to skin up a, a mountain called, what is it, not exactly the Matterhorn or something? No, not your Matterhorn. <laughs> not your Matterhorn. Um, so certainly there's an image there of climbing, you know, this impossible peak and you really struggling. Um, Rob, say something about how you ended up going from Neshoba Valley to skiing Antarctica and what that trip was about for you and when, yeah. when it was. So, I mean, I was, I had skied a little tiny bit as a kid, uh, you know, YMCA bus to Bradford a few times and, uh, and on, uh, with a condo in New Hampshire, we went twice. I remember that, but I hadn't skied in 25 years. So I was, a, I was a beginner and, and he got really good, really fast. So in the resorts we faced, we would started to, especially out West, we started to face this decision where he was so young and I, and I didn't really want to leave him alone. And I would be forced to go down these trails that were way over my head. And I almost got killed about 10 times, but so I really was forced to get better. And, but I, I wasn't a pretty skier. I could just survive things. I have short little legs and powerful legs. And I was able to, to kind of stay on my feet, even, even in places where I shouldn't have been able to. So I got to the point where I was okay in the resorts and, and I, we started to travel out West. We met a, a guide in big sky who was, who was super helpful. And he, you know, he sort of broke me down and built me back up. And, and through him, we went to Portillo, Chile, uh, into a, to a ski camp. And it was sort of like an adult ski camp that, that really was, you know, skiing on one leg and, you know, you know, where your hand should be and, and sort of broke me down. And we did that for a few years. That, um, that same guide who, who, got us to Portillo. One day he called me out of the blue and said, have you ever thought about skiing in Antarctica? And I, I thought he was kidding. I mean, I didn't think that, like, how do we get there? Whaling vessel? Like, like how does, who goes to Antarctica? <laughs> so, so then I looked up the company and I see all these pictures of people in this, you know, sunshine and there's penguins and like, this looks pretty good. And, and so we decided to go. And at that point I had maybe skinned once and we, we had one terrible try at Tux where it was awful. And I was like, I'm never doing this. Why would anyone skin up for like six hours to ski for 30 seconds? I never could understand it. It just didn't make sense. Resort skiing was hard enough for me. I didn't need another element. So I was not into the, 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 the backcountry aspect, but I agreed to go. And, you know, I was told that the, that the tours weren't that, you know, they were that arduous. They were sort of long, flat ones that you would sort of gain elevation, which was somewhat of a lie. I mean, they were, they were pretty tough. Yeah, they were, they were, <laughs> and so, 
so I was I struggled through the whole, the entire thing, and and I you know I started to appreciate it toward the end. It's so beautiful there. I mean, you said it's a bucket list. Go if you can. It's the most beautiful place you'll ever see. It's just stunning. And you know if you can distract yourself by looking around, uh, you know each step gets a little easier. And you know I'll fast forward a little bit. We went we went back a second time this 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 past. December. And this time I trained and I was, a, I was a lot better. I really enjoyed it. I, I never complained the whole time and I had much more fun with it. But that first trip that's in the book, I was somewhat of a disaster, but his was, equipment was a little, yeah, I had, I had like resort equipment. I mean, I was like, they all weighed about hundred pounds and, and I just, you know, I, I, I wanted to be there for him, but while, you know, in the book, you'll see, it really did change my outlook. And, and I, I challenged myself. It was hard and and I and I made it and I made it to the top every day. And, and, and so I think I gained a lot in that experience as well. So, Ryan, what was that like for you? What did skiing Antarctica mean for you? I was always, you know, an adventurer and I had always dreamed of skiing the least accessible places in the world. Uh, Antarctica was the ultimate for that. So. I mean, we have different versions of how we got there. His is true. That is how he decided on it. But I actually proposed it to him long before Ben had reached out. And he was like, what? Nobody skis in Antarctica. I don't want to be in the storm with the blizzard and the dogs. I'm like, Man, it looks so cool. Uh, going there was really cool because it completely changed the outlook of what I thought I could do with my life. I knew it was going to involve the mountains and involve skiing. Uh, but going to Antarctica, not only did I fulfill this dream of seeing the most remote and beautiful place in the world, uh, I also met probably about 20 of the best mountain guides in the world. And I got to know all of them and how all of them ended up on this trip and what they do with their lives. And I'm like, whoa, you know, this is an avenue for me right here. Here are people who are traveling the world, taking people skiing and are still successful enough that they have families and, you know, they're not, you know, one penny away from the whole ship coming down. Like I need to figure out how I can go from where I'm standing as like a 17 year old braces into being one of these guys who's taking clients to Antarctica. And the next four years were a result of that. Uh, and it just it lit my fire. I got wicked inspired after Antarctica. I was kind of a casual ski tourer. I would go do the things that required uphill, but I really just wanted to be like a free rider. I wanted to hit, you know, the, the badass straight lines and go down, you know, the biggest cliff. All of that was out the window after Antarctica. I wanted to tour every weekend and I had the white mountains at my disposal, which as I've discovered, that is the best training ground for steep skiers and climbers and ice climbers in the world. We have so much access, but even though the terrain is smaller, uh, the lines you can get are still um, starting at beginner and going all the way up to cutting edge. There's not a lot that I would say is too easy uh, in the white mountains. So I just started throwing myself at them and, you know, getting involved and getting experience. As a father, it's interesting when we were with all these great guides and I've skied with, it's embarrassing the, the level of people that I've skied with as a above average skier at best, just, you know, the best in the world. One, John Egan was on the trip, who's, you know, legend around here, legend everywhere, Hall mm -hmm. of Fame skier. And I remember him saying, we, we had some long talks on the boat and he said, you know, I was a kid like Ryan. I was just like Ryan and I didn't fit in. And then I found this and, you know, that, that was so powerful to me to think, you know, there's, there's probably a lot of people like that. And even back then where he was in school, you know, it probably was worse. And if not for this sport and the, or the outdoors and, and finding something, something that you're passionate about, who knows where he would have ended up. And so, you know, you gave me a pathway for Ryan say, you know, he's, he's going to take this same journey. He's going to see the world, ski the world, meet amazing people. And, you know, as a father, what, what, what more could you hope for? You know, the, you know, the, my original goal that he would have worked in private equity or been a doctor and sat in a cube or, I mean, this is, this is infinitely better. So it was, it was a good moment for both of us. So Ryan, you're still at Northern Vermont University and mm -hmm. say a little bit about the path you're on and where you're hoping to go with what with with that. So 
Northern Vermont University uh, came about. Uh, I didn't think I was going to go to college for a long time. And then I TA in a rock climbing course or LS actually um, for uh, like a, <laughs> an Eastern Massachusetts public school. They had a really nice climbing wall uh, on campus. And um, I had heard about uh, adventure education at Plymouth State. And um, originally when we did this class, um, financial lit we had to like pick three colleges that had our major and like map out what tuition would be and I, I was already settled on Plymouth State I'm like I'm just gonna go there I hadn't even considered that there were other schools with this major so I ended up finding NVU I went to Johnson first and I ended up liking them better uh, and I enrolled in their outdoor ed major uh, right now the goal is uh to pursue the AMGA track and get certified in rock and ski, take people skiing in the winter, rock climbing in the summer. And um, who knows if I'll go through the full Alpine track, you know, if I get that far, I might as well get the pin. But those are the things I'm most interested in. I think I'm, I'm less into like, you know, the Denali's and the Everest's of the world um, and more on the, the ski and rock side of things, but that's the goal. So I want to talk about your decision, your joint decision to write a book together, which is um, unusual and brave uh, for both of you to take this on. I was reading that um, when your dad approached you with the idea of a book and he showed you some things he had written already, Ryan, you initially rejected the idea of working so, together with him. I actually didn't even get to see any of the writing at first when he proposed it, which is funny. So he told me about the idea. And then I was like, okay, it, I don't know if I want this because after all I went through, I never told anybody at LS what my journey was. And just to remind people, LS is Lincoln Sudbury High Lincoln School. Sudbury. Yeah. I never told anybody at LS what I'd been through. They didn't know, most of them, except unless they were really close with Abigail, didn't know. Um, they just knew I was gone. Um, you know, where was I for those 12 years? And now that that was finally over, uh, everybody's from everywhere in college. I would, I could just blend in with the rest of the world and never have to deal with this again. Uh, so I didn't want to write the book before I'd even read anything because I just thought it was going to damage me. Um, cause I would always have to live with this. I could never escape it anymore he was going to do it anyway. And he's like, I'll just change your name if you don't want to do it. Cause I think it'll help people. So I'm like, okay, if you're going to do it, I want to do it with you. So he gave me a list of all of his chapters that he wrote. And I essentially wrote the same chapters, but from my perspective, and then we compared. So I had the whole book done. He had the whole book done before we'd read any of each other's writing. And it was a little alarming when I read his because his tone initially was um, essentially it was like an apology letter to me. And it was like a, a tale of you could have had all these things and been like everybody else had I not screwed up. And now look at how terrible things are for you. You could have had a prom date and could have had all these friends and done all these things. But you know, now like you're struggling in high school and, and I'm sorry. Um, and I was like, this is not my story because the version I wrote was, I had all these really bad things happen to me that took me to a place where I needed to figure out what I wanted out of life and what made me happy. And I found something that did and I took it to the bottom of the world. And now I was going to take it to everything in between. So it was a, a triumphant story where I learned a lot and I concluded that if I hadn't had the bad part, maybe I wouldn't have had the good part. So that was what I wanted the message to be. And that was what I felt like it was for me. So hearing that his perspective was so different was kind of, it rattled me a little bit. I think I was so angry and guilty. And I, you know, I think Ryan, Ryan's a one draft wonder. I mean, he just, he can just bang it out. I mean, from that, I don't think there's one word of that initial draft that survived. I mean, it's, you know, when you've written books, it's, it's, it's thousands of drafts. And, and so I think it was almost like a journal entry in the beginning where I, he, like he said, it was an apology letter. Cause I did feel like 
I had made these terrible decisions when he was three and four years old that, that derailed what he could have, he could have had this, you know, just you know, experience like everybody else. And, and, and I, I put him in these terrible schools and, and they physically abused him. And I, I, how do I account for that? And, but when I read his version, he, I, I learned how he accounted for it. This terrible thing happened. I had to deal with it. I worked through it. I found skiing. I was a different kid when I skied than when I was at school. When they finally gave me the the chance to be the same kid I was on the mountain in in a public school setting, I thrived. And I said, you know what? He's right. He this this isn't this has to end, you know, on a high note because he's he look where he is. I mean, he's he's where I thought he would be, but it just took a weird path to get there and a, and a path of my doing that that I'll always have to account for and and you know I would write and and I would cry while I would write and and, and to read it now when I cry I mean it's there's a lot of emotion that's that's still there and raw but he's just turned into such a, a wonderful kid and he's well adjusted and confident and and he's he's got a career that he loves and like I said before what more could you want as a father so the the, the later ver the later version of, of the current version of what the book is is I, I think what I envisioned it just took me longer to get there and that's that's writing right Ryan you say something at the end of the book that probably a lot of people will take a lot of readers by surprise and you write that essentially you wouldn't have wanted a different childhood. Why did you say that? What do you mean by that? I uh, I don't know if I would have been the same person if I didn't have it. And I like who I am. So I, I think of most people as a composite of their experiences and how they navigate the world is based on how they experience the world. I really... Um, I think if I had grown up like everybody else, especially in this town, um, I would have taken the opportunity I had for granted. I think I had to see how bad it could be and just go all the way to rock bottom to realize that like, I really am only going to get one shot at this and I would do anything to have the best life I can. Whereas I feel like when I got back to public school, I met a lot of people who I felt like they weren't moving as intentionally because uh, they, they didn't know who they were. They didn't know as much about themselves. They didn't know what they wanted. So as a result, they just did what was expected of them by everybody else and not even their parents. It was kind of this race to nowhere of like who can have the best college bumper sticker. And I met these people who were going to these amazing schools. And I was like, what do you, why did you pick that one? Why do you want to go there? And they're like, I don't know. I mean, just, just figured I would apply there. It's a good school. And just I knowing me, I'm not the, the strongest, most like, you know, unbreakable willed person. I, uh, I actually, um, pretty sensitive to influence, uh, which doesn't come off in the book very much, but I think if I hadn't had that experience, it would have been really easy for me to get sucked into all of that. And I wouldn't have been happy in the end. Rob, at the end of the book, you talk about uh, all that Ryan taught you. Um, and the book begins with you physically imposing your will, trying to teach him. What do you feel like are some of the things that Ryan taught you? He's amazingly resilient. I mean, what anything that was thrown at him, he just would bounce back and and it would take some doing. I mean, he it was it was emotional and and he would unravel sometimes, but sometimes that was part of his process. He needed to let that out to then go and do it. And and I think when you look, at, you know, at that experience, you'd say, you know, sometimes it, it isn't pretty. Sometimes life isn't pretty. It's, you know, we, I think as parents, we protect these kids so much from, from any discomfort. And, and really we do that in our own lives. And so the work is part of the process, you know, and sometimes it's it's why it's good and you know backcountry skiing is an example of that it's it's the uphill is part of it and when you feel pretty good when it's over it's because it there was some pain involved and he i think he he taught me that and, it, and it's, it's just a gift to learn in your 40s i think I, i'd reached that point where you know i was i just figured my life was really just going to be lived through my kids at that point i had done all i was supposed to do and to, to take on this whole new experience, this whole new journey, meet all new people. You, you, you know, you get to a point in life where you think, all right, I've met all my best friends. I, you know, 
I'm done. You know, I'm 40. And I've met this just incredible people, some of the nicest people you ever want to meet, and, and who are all willing to throw themselves down a mountain or, or, or force themselves up a mountain. And I learned, you know, I learned from them every day. And some of them are older than I am. So you can't use age as an excuse. And, and Ryan never used anything as an excuse. He just you know, grits his teeth and, and gets there. And I think that's that's the main thing I learned is, is to just keep trying. One of the things that the things that happen when you write a book is people respond to it. They see their own lives in your life. They're looking for answers. It's one of the reasons uh, they get a book. Uh, the subtitle, How Skiing Saved My Son's Life, uh, will grab a lot of people, especially people who are struggling with uh, the kind of challenges that you have both encountered. So, Ryan, when people ask you, perhaps describing their own child and the struggles that they're having, what lessons you know they can learn from your story, Ryan, what would you say? That's a great question because I feel like there's so much and I'm, I, I summarize it poorly sometimes, but I, I think as long as you have something that motivates you to wake up every day, you can get through most anything. Um, I, I think having, having a drive, uh, having something that lights you on fire is really important. And I think that can be anything. I think people might take the skiing part too literally. It, it could be basket weaving as long as you love it. I think that helps people get through a lot of stuff because I meet people who don't have that and they kind of their attitude towards life is different it, they feel like they're just kind of going with the motions and getting pushed around by the waves I, I also I think just rejecting the, the first notion that someone's put on you I think that's important too I think there was a lot of people who said a lot of things about me that didn't turn out to be true. My forecasted future was a lot worse than what I came around to. And just human nature is pretty resilient. I don't think there's anybody who's really broken or hopeless. I think there's always a way to find a way. And I would caution people that if one person has said, oh, you'll never do this and you'll never be this, might not be true. Well, that seems like a good note to end on. So um, Ryan and Rob Delena, I want to thank you both for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much. Great conversation. That was awesome. Take care. Thank Bye -bye. you.